And open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 7. It's good to have uh, a former pastor's wife here with us today, Janet Schroyer. Wave your hand, Janet, back in the back row, sitting next to Charlotte. What years was your husband the pastor here? 65 to 71. We, My uh, folks were friends with Janet and Bill, and we visited here in that time, not uh, for church service, but to visit them. Bill went to be with the Lord, what month? In March. And uh, so it's good to have you here to visit. Sue and I had a good time of vacation last week on... Uh, or a week ago, we were on a lake north of Spokane. Some friends gave us the use of their uh, vacation house. And uh, all the kids and grandkids were there for part of the week. And uh, on, the, on Monday, <coughs> we left here Sunday night. And on Monday, that was the, the hottest day we've had so far, I think both here and over there. And, and we knew it was going to be warm. So uh, when we were getting ready to get in the lake in the morning, Sue said, you want me to put some suntan lotion on your back? I said, yeah. So she put some on the back. And, and I put some on here. And we went about our uh, vacationing business. And at the end of the day, it became woefully obvious that uh, her hands came over about this far. And my hands went up about this far. But right in here it was <laughs> lobster red. Oh, yeah, baby. I got the blisters and the peeling and the whole business. I was not careful enough. I was careful, but I was not careful enough. As Jesus starts to wrap up what we call the Sermon on the Mount, this first major sermon that he's given, uh, he begins to tell us to be careful. And in particular, he's saying, make sure that you really are an authentic Christian. Make sure you really are a genuine disciple. And as he begins that, a series of maybe four teachings about being careful, he starts by saying, you need to be careful about the entry into discipleship. And that's what we want to look at today. We'll read this whole last section, starting in verse 13. Enter... By the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits." Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every bad tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There's a sense in which Jesus says the same thing about four times over, but with variations. And we want to just look at this first saying today, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. We want to talk about following Christ today and and understand some things that are absolutely critical about the entry, the beginning of being a disciple. And the first one is this, following Christ requires a singular faith, or even better said, a faith in a singular truth, a singular person. And that, that narrowness of the gate is summed up here in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's about as singular as it gets. And that right there is the reason that people don't like Christianity. Because we're not willing to say that Jesus said, I am a way, a pretty good way, one of the best ways, You'd really like this way. There he is calling now. (laughs) Whatever he says, be sure and pass that on to us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He makes it even more singular in these verses. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. And this certainly parallels this idea of a narrow entrance. A narrow entrance. I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me, he's talking about others who called themselves saviors. They were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If any man enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life. I am the entrance into the life of discipleship. I am the entrance into the life of relationship with God. It would do us well to ask this question. Why is Christ the only way to God? Okay. Why is Christ the only way to God? Well, I think the answer comes in these really familiar verses, in one really familiar verse and a couple others that we probably didn't memorize but should have. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes, whoever believes in God as they know him, is that what it says? Whoever believes in the God that they like, the way he acts, whoever believes in him, in Christ, should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The very simple answer to the question, why is Christ the only way to God, is because that is the only way that God has specified. God 
the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, we, we call this the Trinity, or the, the more modern theological term is the triunity of God. Can we understand how there can be three persons and yet they are together in one unified person? I cannot explain that. I can only declare it from God's word. And what the scripture says is that the Father sent the Son to take on a human nature. He was fully God and fully man. And in that fully God and fully man existence, he died on the cross that we have memorialized here. He died on the cross, not for his own sins, not because he'd done anything wrong, but he died on the cross to pay for our sin. God had a claim on us. When he put Adam and Eve in the world, he said, Obey me, and they rebelled, and they deserved to die, both physically and spiritually. And God said, I'm going to be gracious. And I myself. Do you realize that if God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then he himself died to provide for our salvation? You know, it's not too hard for some of us to think about sending people into war until it's our son. God the Father sent his son to pay for us, really, himself. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and three days later rose again. And his only requirement of us for salvation, as we read in those scriptures from John, is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The simple truth is this. We cannot pay for our sin because we are sinful. If we were, would come out of the womb perfectly uh, whole and righteous, and if we would live a perfect life, perhaps we could die to pay for our sin. But then we wouldn't need to die because we'd be perfect. But the whole thing is theoretical, isn't it? Because as much as I love my grandchildren, I haven't seen one that's perfect yet. That goes for your kids, too. And yours, especially. And all of us, we all come out with this bent towards sin because of Adam and Eve. And at our earliest convenience, we begin to rebel. And we begin to do our own thing, and we begin to sin. And so how can a sinful creature somehow pay the penalty for their own sin? It's just not possible. And so God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. We cannot live lots of lives getting a little better each time. As some of our folks in the East would try to tell us. We can't declare the sins of the body to be unimportant because we have meditated our way into some sort of perfection. We can't declare heaven to be someone's fairy tale because we haven't been beyond the grave to check it out. We can only gain heaven through faith in Christ, ultimately because that is what the God of heaven requires. But there's a beauty to this narrowness. There's a beauty to this narrowness. If anybody ever calls you narrow-minded about salvation, say, 
Guilty as charged. And then follow up with this. The beauty of God's narrow way of salvation is, while it is very limited, it is universally accessible. It is universally accessible. Now, I, I know we know this, but would you just think with me about the very first evangelistic sermon ever preached after Christ died, was buried, and rose again? It's in Acts chapter 2, and at the end of that sermon, we see the Apostle Peter beginning to wrap it up. And of course, there's a little line in that sermon that is, that is every preacher's favorite line, because it said, and with many other words he did exhort them. And so it's only... <laughs> It's only the, it's the Cliff Notes version in Acts chapter 2. It's the high points. Maybe it's the outline he was preaching from. I don't know. But it comes down to the end and it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, the one he's been preaching, whom you crucified. He looked right at him and said, You crucified him. And there were people standing there thinking, I was in that crowd saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine being that person? Whom you crucified, he has made him both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, thank God they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, they they felt the conviction of God and they said, Yes, we did wrong. Now what do we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what I want you to notice here is this. Did Peter say, now here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And then you need to get down on your knees and crawl. Crawl up the steps and prove that you really mean that you're sorry about what you did to Christ. And if you really prove how sorry you are, then maybe God will look down at you and say, okay, I guess so. Is that what he said? He said, some of you boys got money. Get your checkbook out. You write a big fat check to the Apostles Ministry Incorporated, then we'll talk. Then he said, sit down here. Let's see how smart you are. Let's see if any of you are, use whatever word you want, mentally challenged. Because if you are, you're not smart enough to understand this. Then he said, let's look at your pedigree. Where were you raised? Are you Jewish? Are you Gentile? You're out. What did he say? What did he say? Repent. The word repent means to change your mind. Literally, it's the idea you're going one direction, you're going to go the other direction. What do you need to change your mind about? You need to change your mind about what you believe about Jesus Christ. Is he the Son of God or not? God says he's the Son of God. Until you believe in him, you are saying, I don't think he's the Son of God. Was he fully a man with a human nature? Until you believe, you're saying, I don't know what he was. Did he die to pay for your sins? Was he raised from the dead? Are you a sinner incapable of saving yourself? When you agree with God, see the positive word that goes with repent is confess. 
To confess is to agree with God. To repent is to change your mind from your human ways and go toward God. To believe is to put faith in what God has said. And all of that is wrapped up. You see, when God uses these different words about he uses these different words about salvation, he's not trying to break it down into a process. He's using a whole series of words, and it's all part of one decision that we make. And so the question today is, have you embraced God's narrow way? Have you embraced God's narrow way? Yes, it's narrow. But all he asks is faith. All he asks is faith. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. The second thing we've got to understand is this. Following Christ is motivated by eternal consequences. Look what he says, Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There is a gate that leads to destruction, verse 14, and there is a gate which leads to life. Essentially, he's saying there's a gate, and then there's a life, and then it, 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 there's a, a bunch of living that goes on, and then it ends up somewhere. Some really good theology can be found in Charlie, Bound, Charlie Brown's uh, cartoon. One of my, when I think of consequences, I think of uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, and Charlie Brown is uh, not wanting to go along with Lucy. And Lucy says, uh, do this. And he says, give me one good reason. And she says, I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. And he says, those are good reasons. The choice... To follow or not follow, the choice to enter the narrow gate or to walk through the broad gate has consequences. There are reasons to believe. It's not just a matter of, well, I'm going to believe in Christ and then someday, you know, whatever. There are consequences to our faith, both positively and negatively. The word destruction is translated several ways in the New Testament. And I believe God does that on purpose to, to help us understand that it is a broad concept, as is the concept of life. Sometimes it means to perish, or it's translated to perish, or to be lost, or to experience destruction. And in these various translations, sometimes it refers to loss in this life, as in, um, at the end of Matthew 7, when the house falls down, the word destruction would be used of that. You know, you it's all collapsed. It's gone. Sometimes it refers to death, the idea just of physical death. And sometimes it refers to eternal destruction in hell. All of these are wrapped up together in Jesus' warning when he says, Listen, the broad way, the easy way, the way that is popular is going to lead you to destruction. And that is both temporal and eternal we need to understand the, the potential of eternal destruction. And that is certainly the most important aspect of this warning. And I think it's well summarized here in 2 Thessalonians 1. Seeing it as a righteous thing, the, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Christians at the church in Thessalonica. And he says, seeing that it's a righteous thing with God to 
pay back tribulation to those who trouble you. There were people who hated Christians and were causing problems for the Christians in Thessalonica. And, and to you who are troubled, he will give you rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, listen, take heart. You're being persecuted now. But he said, someday, when Christ comes back, he's going to take vengeance on those people who have been persecuting you. Because God views persecution to a Christian as persecution to himself. So he takes that seriously. But the most serious part of this scenario with the Thessalonians is this. There were some people who were believers in Christ and some people who were not. And what is the end of these people who, did, who chose not to believe in Christ? They chose to walk in the broad way. It is everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. We don't know what everlasting destruction is. To us, something is either torn down or built up and it's done. Over. God talks about hell in terms of an everlasting kind of punishment, an everlasting kind of death, an everlasting and ever-continuing kind of destruction. The kind of destruction Jesus is talking about is not something that consumes and is over. It's something that goes on. It's talked about here uh, in a parable that Jesus told about a rich man who died who was not a believer. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and he saw Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. Lazarus was a believer. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fix so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. In other words, raise Lazarus from the dead, send him to my family to witness to them. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The torment was ongoing, and it was terrible. That's not easy to say, it's not fun to say. I don't take any pleasure in that. I wish it were not so. This sinner, as an example that Christ uses to teach us many things, was very much alive in his everlasting destruction. He was alive in torment that did not cease, and that torment was spiritual as well as physical. Did you understand that? Yes, he was tormented by the flames, and he was tormented by what? By the knowledge that his family was going to join him. Thankfully, we don't have to live in anticipation of punishment. 
because there is a potential included in Jesus' warning for eternal life. He says, enter by the narrow gate, verse 14, because this is the way that leads to life. Again, we go back to that familiar verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life stands in contrast to everlasting destruction. And it starts at the moment of salvation, but certainly when we die and meet Christ in heaven, it you might say it escalates into its full glory. The definition of that part of life that we call eternity, that we call after death, is well described here in John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What's that glory he's talking about? Do you remember Peter, James, and John, and Jesus took them up the mountain, and it says he showed them a little bit of his glory? And Peter was so overcome, he just went, oh, we've got to build some places of worship here. This is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And Jesus went, calm down, bud. But it was just a little, a little foretaste of the glory. Whatever it was, was the most magnificent thing they'd ever seen. And he says, I want my believers to be with me and to see my glory. Heaven is a place and a person, both beyond anything we can imagine. I, I, I fear that many people have a, a, a human concept of heaven rather than a godly concept. Because the godly concept is this. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We imagine, how, boy, this would be really great, and that would be wonderful, and oh, if, it, if I just didn't have any more aches and pains. And all those things will be true. But all those things we can't imagine are the tip of the iceberg. Every time somebody who I know, have known fairly well, goes to heaven, I, I, I somehow am able to imagine a little bit more about what would it be like to walk in there. You know, I, I think of Bill Schroyer, Janet's husband. He was a, a little guy and an enthusiastic guy, and I wonder what it would be like when Bill walked into heaven. You know, I, I don't know. But I know he is experiencing things beyond anything we can imagine. Your choice for the narrow road or the broad road is going to have an eternal consequence. You're going to make some important decisions in your life. Uh, what school to attend, what career to choose. One of the most important, obviously, who you'll marry where to live, where to work. You're going to make a lot of decisions, but there's no decision that will be more important than the decision to believe in Christ as your Savior. I can remember, oh, how many years ago was it? I've been here 12 years. 
And then Tukwila, 14, almost 15. It was right at the beginning of our time in Tukwila, so call that 26 years ago. Costco was kind of a new thing. I think it was like the second store they built in Tukwila. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, I wonder if I should buy some stock in Costco. Uh, yeah, would have been a really good decision. <laughs> I know people that have, that have talked about others who bought Microsoft stock 20 years ago. And now they're bazillionaires. What about a great decision? Someday you're going to stand before Christ in heaven. And if you did or didn't believe in Christ, you're going to look back and say, wow, that was an important moment. And I'm so glad I believed, or I wish I had I want to encourage you today, if you've never believed in Christ, you need to. It is, the, it is important for, for eternity, but it's also important for this time right now. The word temporal means the stuff we're living in. There is eternal after death, and there is temporal here and now. You see, Jesus didn't just talk about eternity. In fact, when he uses these words destruction and life, or, or more commonly even death and life, they have to do with right now as well as in the future. This passage summarizes up the life issue really well. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. God claims that through his word, he has given us the stuff that we need to live. And he, cl- and he claims that we can be partakers of the divine nature. We can partake in his godly character and we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. The word lust in the New Testament means desire. And when you live by your desires, rather than living by the word of God, the result is a destructive quality in life. You don't have to read too far. You know, I think yesterday I read about a man being sentenced to prison for attempting to murder his girlfriend. I think they lived together and had kids. And he took her out in the woods and cut her neck and left her for dead. But she didn't die. She was able to crawl out and she was able to live. You know why he cut her neck? Jealousy. Because she was either fooling around on him or he thought she was fooling around on him. Now let me make this real simple for you. Somebody there was living by their desire. Not living by the word of God. And what was the net effect in all of their lives? It's what God calls corruption. Life, de- life either decays or it grows and builds. And when we live by the desires of our flesh, life decays. If you want to know if you're living by the desires of your flesh, look at your life. If there is a decaying quality, if there are problems, if things are falling down, if you just can't make it work, it's because you're not living by the word of God, but living by your desires. God says we can do better than normal. We don't need to settle for the pleasure of sin for a season which won't last. 
we can live in the joy and peace and love of Christ that satisfies all the way down to the bottom of your soul. We saw some cookies on the shelf. I think it was while we were on vacation. And there's some cookies with chocolate in them. And it said, these satisfy your soul. We should have bought them. It might have felt good. I don't know. Do you know what? Those cookies will make you happy. I believe that. They will make you happy for a short while. I, I mean that. And all of the other things you can imagine that are life by your desires will make you happy for a little while. But when you live by your desires, the net effect is always a decaying quality of life. It's hard to say no and to live righteously. But the result is a quality of life that is joyful and peaceful, even in the midst of some difficulties. Well, following Christ is motivated by the consequences, but it requires a rejection of the majority opinion. That's, that's really what this broad way is about. He says there is a broad way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate, and difficult the way that leads to life. In Sunday school, we saw a statistic about the number of Christians in Indonesia. And what we saw was something like, uh, in, in a religious survey, 82% of the people claimed to be Muslim. Um, and then what was the next group? Was Protestant next? Protestant is the number two group at like 5.7%. Now that's, that's Protestant. That's everybody who says, I'm a Christian. Everybody who was born into a Christian family. So really the true Christians are many, many less than that. But even, just let's go 82% to, to 6%. The broad way and the narrow way. And truth be told, that's probably how it is in our country. Oh, I know there are many people, you can read the surveys and, you know, 50% claim to be Christian. I understand that. But is, do you think, do you think 50% of the people in this country are disciples of Christ? Do you really believe that? Do you think 50% of the people that you encounter day to day are walking with the Lord and living in the joy and peace of the Lord and treating you like Christ? No, I don't think so. The narrow way is always going to be the narrow way. There, there is no evangelistic method. There is no way we could decorate our church or, or landscape it or, or send Raul to school so we could finally learn to play the guitar. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do to become the majority in Ferndale. We're always going to be the minority. And, and, and we don't want to glory in that. We don't want to go around with a chip on our shoulder and go, yeah, you're part of that stupid majority. We're the minority. You know, no, no, no. But we just need to take stock of the fact that Jesus said, many go in the broad gate. It is the majority opinion. It is the majority opinion. And what's interesting to note from the New Testament, within a few years of Jesus Christ dying, being buried, and rising again, this is the majority opinion. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. The Jews stumbled over the cross because the cross required them to kneel in humble poverty of soul. 
The Jewish people were extremely religious. Oh, they were all about all kinds of religious behavior, both personally and privately, at least in the leadership, and certainly from many of the Jewish people. But when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you are not going to get to heaven unless you believe in me. They said, I don't like that. I want to do this myself. Interesting quote from from years ago when Billy Graham uh, preached the gospel in Australia. This is a letter to the editor of a newspaper there. After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. Friends, that is the majority opinion. Now, God in his mercy reaches down into the majority and opens minds and hearts every so often. But that is the majority opinion. If you're going to believe in Christ, you need to know right now the majority of people in your life are going to say, what is wrong with you? The Greeks declared the gospel to be foolishness because they couldn't understand how Jesus could be both fully God and fully man and then die and be raised on the third day. See, the Greeks represent, in, in many ways, our country. Scientific mindset. Tell me how this works. Let me figure it out. And God has told us His whole truth, and there's a lot of it there, and we can understand all of that. But at the end of the day, Jesus Christ, his son, took on flesh and died on the cross, was buried and rose again. And can I experientially understand that as a human being? Does anything around me ever look like that? Nope. And so at the end of the day, I have to choose to believe. Now here's what's interesting, folks. This majority opinion started right after Christ left the earth. And it hasn't changed. And yet still people choose to believe because they see the life that God wants to give. People reject Christ because they don't want to admit they're lost and they don't want to rely on God's wisdom. The true believer in Christ who follows him as Lord will come under criticism. But Jesus said, hey, they're going to treat you the same way they treated me. And that's why God doesn't ask us to understand. He does ask us to deny ourselves. He said, if you're going to come after me, there's going to be a price to be paid. But there's going to be a value given in exchange. Now let me bring this around to our missionary friends and us and our mission in Ferndale and Indonesia and say this, following Christ requires guidance. Following Christ requires guidance. What in the world do I mean by that? What I mean is this, 
There is a normal process of people coming to Christ, of people finding that narrow gate. And that normal process is summarized here in 1 Corinthians 3. Who is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers? People who preach the gospel through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. What God describes here is the process of people coming to faith in Christ. First of all, the truth of God is shared. That's the word planted, and that's a reference to Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower. He says the gospel is like seed. You, you tell people the gospel, tell them the gospel, tell them the gospel, and the seed goes out and lands on the ground, and some of it grows up and people are saved, and some of it doesn't. The truth is shared. The truth of God then is explained and endorsed. Um, I would say that a lot of what you described to me today, Dave and Christy, is watering. There are people who know some of God's truth, but they need folks to come along and say, God did create in six days. You can trust God. Let me tell you how he's provided for me. Let me explain the gospel so you know the whole story. All of this taking God's truth and, and teaching it and endorsing it, saying, yes, there is a price to pay, but yes, there is a wonderful life to receive. That is the watering. The Apostle Paul talked about it here. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. If you have friends who are thinking about the gospel, thinking about Christ, you need to assure them. You need to encourage them. I know we can't t twist anybody's arm into the kingdom. I don't want to. But God has chosen to use us to, first of all, spread the seed of the gospel, and second of all, encourage people to believe and explain, and, and as much as is humanly possible, help them to believe. And then the next step in this process is the truth of God convicts. When he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're here today hearing the gospel of Christ and in your heart something is going, that is the truth. You need to act on it. I got news for you. It's not my eloquence because I don't have it. It's God's word through the Holy Spirit that is poking you saying you need to believe this. The truth of God convicts and then the truth of God produces salvation the increase that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. We declare the gospel. God causes fruit to come. The gospel ministry does not happen without people. Now, you know, I know sometimes people pick up a Bible and start reading, and we would say, well, there was no person involved in that. Yes, there was. Somebody printed that Bible, and somebody paid for that Bible, and somebody handed that Bible out. The gospel ministry does not happen without people. That is not to diminish God. It is to declare God's system. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, when he, he went out and did missionary work, then he came back, and, and he went to the elders at the church of Jerusalem, and when he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. The Apostle Paul said, let me tell you what God has done through me. That was not arrogant. It was not demeaning to God. 
It was a simple statement of the fact that God called him, saved him, sent him, helped him, spoke through him. That is God's way. I had a Sunday school teacher who said, does anybody want to believe in Christ as their Savior? She called me. She called our class to believe. I certainly had parents who believed and I'm sure taught me. This week at camp, Michaela, were there kids who got saved at camp this week? You don't know this, okay, the report on that yet? Usually every week at our church camp, there are kids who get saved. Who, who are the people involved in those lives? Everybody who works at camp. And everybody, and like in our church, that supports the camp. And their parents and their pastors or whoever... There is an unbroken chain of godly people guiding others to the narrow gate, beginning with Christ himself. Why, do, why are guides to the narrow gate needed? Because the devil does everything he can to obscure the gate. That's his work. He, he wants everybody to see the, the broad gate. You know, you, you, you can picture the broad gate like... A, you know, the, the street in Las Vegas, not so much that there's all of that sin going on, but all of those lights and action and happening stuff. And people go, whoa, that's happening! And people look over here and there's Jesus going, come on. And the devil's right there going, that's nothing. Look at how cool this is. Look how many people are there. You want to be part of that little crowd? You want to be part of this big crowd? There are guides required. And we are them. In just the last couple of weeks, we have been vividly reminded of the uncertainness of this life. There's a well-known actor, 52 years old, James Gandolfini. 52 years old. Died of a heart attack. Boom. Unexpectedly. Train crash. How close do you live to the train tracks? A whole middle of a town obliterated. Completely unexpectedly. In an unexpected way. Plane crash. Do you get up in the morning saying... Today might be my day. Today might be my friend's day. As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time for salvation. What a great privilege is ours to have a positive anticipation of life after death. I encourage you to enter by the narrow gate today. And I encourage you to be a guide. Heavenly Father, hmm. I thank you for my Sunday school teacher. And I thank you for my folks who led her to the Lord. And I thank you for all the folks here who are working hard to be guides for the narrow gate. For all the people at camp who are trying to guide 
young people into that narrow gate. May people respond in faith today. Perhaps somebody is here and never has believed. Help them to respond to you today. Help us to know the joy of life in you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.